Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Period. Even if you take the path of least resistance, well, then you're going to have the vagaries of insecurities and shocks to your confidence and wondering who you are. It's in front of us. 100% of us die. It's going to happen. It is inevitable. And somehow we figure out a way to avoid that subject. Somehow we figure out a way to keep it feeling like death is optional. bunch of things we just have to kind of communicate them to the public and not just communicate them to the public but we also have to open up the conversation in the other direction because you can create little worlds from what you're given and you can reframe yourself and you can replace yourself in a million ways the more we all talk about it the more light we shine on it and with that opening who knows what solutions to problems are waiting for us healthcare system is doing exactly what it's designed to do and doctors are doing what they're educated to do unfortunately they're not educated to have difficult conversations or to help people yield to things that cannot be changed uh, or help people to find perspective amidst their suffering these things are not taught in medical school and yet this is the subject matter in any clinic any day of the year there's a policy issue, there's an awareness issue, there's a workforce education issue, and then there's a systems issue. So I'm trying to move on all four fronts. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Fei Wu, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Phase World podcast. Today, I have Dr. BJ Miller on the show. BJ is a palliative care physician at the UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, California. His TED Talk in 2015 named What Really Matters at the End of Life was watched by nearly 5 million people worldwide. Death has never been a popular subject. Why would so many people want to listen? BJ thinks deeply about how to create a dignified, graceful end of life for his patients. We need to embrace the subjective. People are transformed by illness. Death is, in fact, part of life. It is one of the few things we all know for certain. So what do we do about that? BJ's answers to the questions on the show today is simply relevant to all of us. The knowledge and wisdom of how we live and how we die can benefit everyone, not just the people who are suffering. From BJ's origin story as a wounded healer, to choosing to attend medical school after the accident, to an invitation to speak at the main TED event in 2015, and the story behind a brutal preparation which many people don't know about. This conversation is very much two friends on a coffee break. BJ is as nurturing, authentic, and humorous as when I first met him. 
As it turned out, I had to throw away many of the questions I prepared over the course of two days. BJ took me on a journey of uncovering so much more of who he is, not just a guest every popular show wants to feature with a message to convey in 30 seconds or less. With that in mind, I asked BJ a difficult question. How does he navigate and how does he feel about the attention from major media these days? Which part of that excites him or worries him? I met BJ at the Robert Lefford MD Palliative Care Memorial Lecture in December 2016, which has attracted hundreds of medical and non-medical professionals over the years. I want to take a moment to dedicate this special episode to the Lefford family, Linda and Adam Leffert, Dr. Lisa Leffert, Dr. Lee Schramm, last but not least, Dr. Vicki Jackson at MGH, who took care of Robert Leffert, MD, through his final days and opened all of our eyes to the important work of palliative care. Without further ado, please welcome BJ Miller to the Face World podcast. excited and I know your time is precious. So thank you for doing this. And since I mentioned the lecture series, just briefly that I want to let my listeners know that you and I met at the Robert Lefford MD Palliative Care Memorial Lecture at MGH, which was a lecture series established in 2011. And Dr. Lefford was an MGH physician and Harvard professor. He was also a veteran. This memorial was in honor of uh, his memory and support and the support that really helped him and his family through his final days. So a big shout out to Vicki Jackson, chief of MGH Palliative Care Service. So what I have observed over the years is this lecture has attracted hundreds of people, medical professionals and others such as myself, and you were the latest guest. What was it like for you to speak at MGH? Well, it was awesome in a lot of ways. It it was very strange because uh, I did my fellowship at MGH and the Dana-Farber. So when I did my fellowship in palliative care, that was 2006, 2007, so Vicki Jackson was my one of my main teachers. She was the director of the fellowship at the time. So to come back to that same place where I was a student to deliver a lecture was just a fun, sweet sort of full circle and a little uh, intimidating, but mostly really fun and just wonderful and wacky to be back in, the, in that new way. <laughs> Yeah, I had no idea until you started uh, speaking and you said you were nervous, but I realized that that nerve went away very quickly. Yeah, you know how it is. Once you kind of get going and everyone, you can tell everyone's not angry and people weren't falling asleep and you get a little bit of a hit of confidence and things are off and running. So yeah, it worked out. I had a great time. It worked out lovely. Mm. I have to say, um, tell you a bit about my own experience. And I think you were going to laugh because as a podcaster, every time I go into an event, especially something such as this lecture series, I always studied the guests beforehand, such as the year before. I was uh, Dr. Atugawande. I've read his books and such. But somehow this time I was so caught up the day before and I forgot to research and I was completely pleasantly surprised. And (laughs) I remember walking up to your picture And uh, Adam and I were looking, 
you know, you're, we're thinking, we're saying, wow, this guy is really good looking, which I'm surprised <laughs> that nobody has brought up in any of the podcasts just yet. And we're saying, oh, is he a real doctor? Is he a TV doctor? And it was so embarrassing. Uh, now I think about it. And I realized that when I met you, you know, I was really shocked because looking at the picture, I, I had really imagined that you had not suffered and you, you know, you are a doctor. Life has worked out in a way that's easy for you. And so I started to rethink when we say a picture is worth a thousand words, but to me, it's worth a, a thousand imaginations. And some of that is completely inaccurate. You know, mm. I start to think about myself, not judge people before I actually meet them. So mm. yeah, well, amen to that. I mean, we do it all, all of us do it all the time. You know, we project this or that, especially on a on a photograph. You know, especially that's such a setup. Any sort of public life is such a setup for the projection impulse to run wild. You know, it's kind of what's kind of interesting to go from being, you know, one-on-one -on -one clinician with folks to trying to work a little bit of scale in an organization, trying to spread the gospel of an organization, and now trying to sort of just beat the drum on a big issue in society, each step along that way has just pulls you farther away, but you have more and more of a relationship with all sorts of people you don't know. And those relationships are real in their way and they feed all parties in their own way, but they're also increasingly farther uh, removed from the realities that would inform a typical relationship. I, I meet people and I realize that they already have a bunch of ideas about who I am and 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 it's it's fine. I mean that's that's okay. It's sort of human nature. It's not necessarily. It's usually just sort of fascinating, but it's also a little, I don't know, uh, unsettling at times. What you just described happens a fair amount, and it's an interesting phenomenon. And most of the time it's just fun, and 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 I can leave it at that. But sometimes it's a little problematic. But anyway, thank you for circling back. And we do it to each other all the time, don't we? We we look at someone and we assume we know. We fill in the blanks so quickly. Yeah. And I, I suppose there's some great evolutionary reason why we do that. We must do that. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that. You know, I, I don't typically start off the podcast being so <laughs> this level of honesty, but somehow that's the, the feeling I had gotten from the lecture. The very next day, I woke up after meeting you and thought to myself, whoa, wait a minute, what happened? You know, mm -hmm. there's some sort of reconfiguration happening, like in some of my own body in a way. <laughs> and it's only been a month and I have to say that I, I could feel my heart racing and uh, my daily lives was changed significantly. Part of that is about re-engineering some part of that and as simple as going to sleep and really appreciating the things that I have and waking up in the morning and say, what is my intention today? You know, what do I want to focus on? Because I no longer want to take anything for granted, you know? And um, I feel like the, I started talking to many, many more people, including my own family, friends about palliative care. Many of them at this point did not know much about it at all. What a shame, you know? So I wonder... What is an explanation you find helpful, perhaps, when explaining to your patients and, and others uh, about palliative care, what it is and what it isn't? Well, about palliative care in general, I mean, I think, you, you know, one of the things that would be so fun to do and it keeps cropping up as a big project to take on with a group of folks is 
essentially a branding, you know, a marketing campaign for palliative care because it's just so hard to describe what the heck it is. It's so hard to describe why it's special because, you know, you kind of describe it. Oh, well, you know, it's multiple. It's, it's an interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life in the context of serious illness or something like that, you know, or there are long and win- longer winded answers. It says, well, palliative care is about tending to the whole person, about quality of life, their spiritual health, their physical health, their emotional health. Uh, or I've heard some people describe it as relationship-centered care, that what it really highlights is the relationship between patient and their family and friends, as well as with the clinician. All, all of those are accurate, but I also don't know that they do the sort of the poetry of the field much justice. You know, the subject matter is really is is suffering. And that means 100% of the population is relevant to the subject. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is sort of the least esoteric subject around. This is the least exotic subject around in that we all have a relationship to it. So how do you do that justice? I mean, that, that that's special. That is unique. I don't know what else you can say that about. So it's tricky. And, and we all know that very few people understand what palliative care is. And when they do understand what it is, they want it. They want more of it. They like it. And we also know that palliative care has uh, salutary effects on well-being for the patient and the family. We know it helps uh, this health system generally save a bunch of money as a rule. We know that places that uh, organizations that have palliative care programs gen- generally are happier places to work. We know a bunch of things. We just have to kind of communicate them to the public and not just communicate them to the public, but we also have to open up the conversation in the other direction because the way each of us suffers, the way uh, we get through, the way we cope is practically infinite variations on themes. And we have so much to learn from each other. It's really a two-way street that needs to open. This is sort of the tip of the spear of patient-centered care. And if palliative care marches forth well, it will start to understand, it will help the health system understand what people actually really want once they're informed. And that's much bigger than just the field of suffering or end-of-life care. So anyway, it's really tricky to do justice to it, but we kind of have to because a lot of people are suffering out there with a palliative care program right down the hall that they don't think to uh, enroll in because they don't think it's relevant to them when in fact it most certainly is. Mm-hmm. I was going to bring this up later, but now you mentioned, I think will make you happy to know that uh, one of my previous guests, Eli from he's excited about this interview, but he also want to let you know that for this one month winter vacation, he, at the age of 19 now, he decided to volunteer at a local hospital here in Boston to help with the measurement of palliative care. This is a profession Mm. that he absolutely wants to get into. Cool. Yeah. And then one of the things that he said, uh, which I'm going to quote him, is that everybody dies. It's one of the few things we all know for certain. And by not reckoning with this fact, it doesn't make it, you know, less sad or vulnerable. Yeah. So, so BJ, you have a very unusual experience. You have been both a physician as well as a patient. And more and more people are learning about you, about your backstory, watching a TED Talk. But do you mind uh, sharing your story as well with my listeners? Oh, my Mike Bush. It's so interesting. My patients have to tell me and show me all sorts of stuff. They have to get very vulnerable. So uh, the least I can do is uh, share the favor. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I got into medicine. I mean, I think I was injured in college from electrical burns, uh, screwing around on a commuter train, and I had a metal watch on and the, the electricity arc to the watch. And so I ended up losing my left hand below the elbow and both legs below the knee from those burns. And that was sophomore year of college. So went through my rehab and all that stuff. And then I went back to college. I had to figure out what the heck I was going to do. But before that, I had to figure out you know, who I was. And I was wrestling with questions of identity and trying to make sense of, of these losses and what had just happened, et cetera. And uh, trying to stay relevant to society, to myself, and, and trying to find my place. That led me to study the arts and to, as, a, as a way to help me chew on perspective making and, and how human beings take what they're given and uh, create things, make things, make art. How art was so compelling in particular because it existed for its own sake. People were creating things for their own sake. In a way, you're, you're touching the gods a little bit. You can create little worlds from what you're given and you can reframe yourself and you can replace yourself a million ways. And I don't know other species that do that. It's such a particular human thing. So it was very helpful for me to study art as an undergraduate to help me reframe my own experiences. That's the bottom line. And really help me help me learn how to see. And then, so from there, I was like, well, geez, okay, well, what do I, how am I going to make a living? What? And I knew, I knew I wanted to use these experiences as a patient. I didn't want to overcome them. I wanted to use them. They were very potent. So and I learned a ton from them very quickly. So why why cover them up rather than work with them? So I was trying to figure out a way to be in the world and work in the world where I could use these experiences directly or indirectly and use this sort of high-powered high education that I was fortunate enough to have. So that led me to medicine. And it was very much the same impulse. Just The impulse was interest in human beings. And just the same impulse as took me into study art is what took me to study medicine. And I, I thought I was going to do rehab medicine. Uh, the joy was using these things to be of service. And so, gosh, well, to whom would I be most uh, relevant or most in service? And I figured, well, other people with disabilities. So maybe go into physical medicine rehabilitation, work with people who are beyond some traumatic event and trying to reconfigure themselves just as I was doing. But long story short, I've, I fell out of love with that as a, as a vocation, with rehab medicine as a vocation for a number of reasons. But then got turned on to palliative care when I was doing my internship, my first year after medical school. My sister had died and I was back with my family, kind of regrouping as a family now uh, in Milwaukee, where I did my internship at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And they happened to have a sparkling, one of the first palliative care programs in the country. And I just luckily took an elective there and got turned on practically immediately for all the reasons I think we've already, or many of the reasons we've already discussed. Um, here was a field that really embraced the subjective. Here was a field that was interested in how people are transformed by illness, rather than just trying to treat the illness as an aberrancy that you correct and try to get back to life from, that this was in fact part of life. And, and this idea that, that our suffering could be a joining force rather than a dispersing force. All those things were very immediately, obviously possible in this field. And so I jumped in both feet, so to speak. And I, you know, and it's been a really great ride. I, I, all, all the, 
philosophical and spiritual and scientific and all the different angles on this subject continue to feel in a swirl every day. And I feel very fortunate to be working on a subject that in a way you work on this subject professionally and it helps you personally. Your, your personal and professional lives get linked in a very sweet way. A little tricky sometimes for those of us who like who think boundaries can be important, but it really is gorgeous work and I've loved it uh, every minute ever since. a lot of professions that you could have chosen and you know after the accident and you chose medical school and I've had uh, plenty of friends more than a handful here in Boston who have chosen that path and I've just watched how brutal that is internship residency and have to move around the country as a result Mm. how challenging was that part for you because you certainly did not choose an easy way out or a path through a new career no that's true. Medicine, medical training is brutal and long, but I could feel as I was re-entering the world after my injuries, you know, you go through your body and your soul, you're going through things that you would never have guessed you could go through or would go through. And even as you're being, even as you're broken down, there's also, there can be a little kernel of a new kind of confidence you know, sometimes imagining what it is like to go through something is actually harder than going through it. It's so true. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? and, and so it is with this. Coming out of the hospital, as painful as it was, I was also aware that I had a, a much bigger capacity <laughs> to suffer, had a much bigger capacity <laughs> to take on pain and to get through things one way or another. I didn't realize. And so as much as the accident and the injuries took from me, they also gave a lot. And, and one of the ways they gave was this, you know, this different frame of reference. So medical school didn't seem so hard after hanging out in a burn unit for three years or three months as a patient, you know, or losing a few limbs, you know, all of a sudden that really, that changed my frame of reference. So that medical school didn't have to, didn't seem so hard. So I could take it in stride in ways that I probably wouldn't have been able to take in stride otherwise. And, you know, you put one foot in front of the other and before you know it, you're actually doing it and it's actually working and things went well. There were bumps along the way. And that's not to say that I could have easily failed um, and almost dropped out of med school, uh, actually. But Bottom line, and to your point is, yes, it is not an easy path, but when after you go through something like that, you kind of realize life is not an easy path, period. Even if you take the path of least resistance, well, then you're going to have the vagaries of insecurities and shocks to your confidence and wondering who you are. And all that kind of torment is not, I wouldn't say, is, is no easier than med school. So sitting around doing nothing, in a way, seemed harder. I would have had a harder time looking at myself in the mirror doing that. So, absolutely, I love your uh, the new article that New York Times posted. One man's quest to change the way we die, and I might have to reach out to the author. I feel like that's such a beautifully written is 
you know, it's dramatic. It's also factual. It's a, such a good rhythm. And I took many quotes out of that. And one of the things I love is every work is shaped by the viewer's perspective. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's true with the way we live our lives as, as well as how, you know, a piece of artwork is coming out from an artist's perspective. And I thought about... Uh, as our conversation dinner the other just about a month ago and I love the way I love the story of your TED Talk experience which I don't think many uh, listeners or your fans out there really know uh, how that all came together because it did not sound like a necessarily an easy process for you so do you mind sharing that experience <laughs> oh gosh yeah sure that, that was brutal <laughs> I mean, you know, like so many things, like, uh, and this is the, the vagaries of language too. Like, right, I just called preparing for a TED Talk brutal. And, and two seconds ago, I was telling you that, you know, uh, if you're not losing feet and you're not in death's door, well, it can't be that hard like med school. So I, I, you know, part of this is you have, you bounce around in language and your frames of reference, but within, within a normal frame of reference, not including lopping off limbs, preparing for that TED Talk was very hard. <laughs> it was brutal. For, for, for starters, I feel very fortunate, especially when I was working for Zen Hospice, a nonprofit organization, where you're constantly trying to raise money. When the opportunity to give a TED Talk came around, it was impossible to say no to on behalf of my work at Zen Hospice, but also on behalf of the field, like we've already said. This field is just so thirsty for attention. So it was impossible to say no to the opportunity. And the way I had that, way that opportunity came about, because I get asked this a lot, honestly, I don't know what the normal process is getting to the TED stage. Uh, I, I understand it's not easy and it's also mysterious. And I have no, I have no idea. I, I luckily came in the side door. I was a friend of mine who I had had lots of conversation with, who works at IDEO, a place that I'm friendly with. He kindly put me up for this. There's a thing called the TEDx Prize. So I was nominated for that TEDx Prize. And I didn't get the prize, but then that's what led to the invitation to give a TED Talk. But the bigger part of your question, I know, is is preparing. So, you know, you're given, I think I had 17 minutes. And inherently it's crazy to stuff just about any subject into something that short on some level. Then you throw in the the hell of performance anxiety. So I hear I had this subject. I knew that I knew I wanted to talk about death, but how the heck are you going to take a subject that large and do it remotely, do it justice in 17 minutes? Oh, and by the way, you have to share your personal story because no one really listens to it if if there's no personal story involved, if it's just me out there reciting an essay, that wouldn't go so well. I finally, friends of mine who are writers and who are in this world and know more than I do and helped edit my talk along the way. It took me about two months to craft the talk, the content of it, and to whittle it down to the right size. And I had help with like my woman who I'm writing a book with now, Shoshana Berger, was hugely helpful. Courtney Martin, another author and friend here, and her husband, John Carey, were very helpful. And Mary Remington and others have been very kind to read it and give me feedback. So I had a lot of help. I do not recommend doing that in a vacuum. You need to bounce that sort of thing off of people. And I did. So then you get the content and then you had to friggin' memorize the darn thing because I, and I really couldn't get myself to believe this. I had heard that the, the big Ted stage that they don't want you to use props. You can use slides, but they don't want you to use notes. They don't offer a teleprompter. And I had heard that and I was kind of like, oh, there's no way that's true. How could people possibly memorize these things and get it down to the minute? So 
I finally let that into my consciousness about a month before the talk, which was, I think, in February 2015 in Vancouver. And so then it became the chore of memorizing that darn thing. That was brutal. And then, the, so like the night before, and then the other part of this crazy story was, my talk was the la- was scheduled for the very last talk of the whole, you know, it's a week-long fest. You know, it's this crazy, amazing, wonderful immersive week-long experience and so you're watching all these pros give these incredible talks who are not only the content's amazing their lives are amazing and their performances are amazing i mean you're just watching each of these and being so moved and so impressed and then and then come to remember that you have to go do that on that same red dot soon and it was the last friggin' talk of that so that was just hell for me i i can't i hate impending pain i'd rather have the pain up front i'd rather front load the hard part so the week goes by and you just like can feel yourself trying to not fall into a hole and the night before i was supposed to go on i went home i with a shaking chill i had the sweats i had what i thought was a fever i felt physically ill i probably slept a total of a half hour that whole night but anyway i get up the good part was when i went on stage i feel like i was so physically drained from the anxiety and the non-sleep the night before, I couldn't, I couldn't muster like a physical anxiety. I felt very calm because I just was so tired. <laughs> and there, the, the last part of the story is I'm like, you know, you're backstage and the stage crew guys were awesome and jokey and we we're having a good time. And this one woman, she was really nice. And that, she comes up and I'm about to go on stage and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't care at this point how I do. I just want this thing over with. 17 minutes from now, I'll be done. I don't care if I bomb it. I just want I just want it to be in the past. Cheesy little headset mic on, sitting there backstage, about to go on. And this woman, I thought she was joking. She says, hold on, we have a, we have a surprise guest. It's just going to be another 10 minutes. And I was just so bummed to hear that at all. And then she's like, I'm like, well, what is it? And it's the frigging Dalai Lama getting <laughs> in. So not only I'm like last and all that I just described, but now I've got to follow the frigging Dalai Lama on a subject that's related to my subject. It's not like we're talking about apples and oranges. And how the hell am I going to follow the Dalai Lama? I mean, it was ridiculous. But the good news is it was so ridiculous I can let go. Once I'm into the realm of absurdity, once things are just obviously ridiculous, I can really let go. It actually helps me. And in that moment, I got to just sort of like, oh, okay, well, this is, I have every excuse in the world to bomb. So whatever, this is fine. Oh, thanks for sharing that story. I I remember that day at uh, the dinner table, people laughed so hard and then everybody from every other table had to turn around trying to find out what was happening. But even just hearing you telling the story for the second time, it's like tears in my eyes just thinking how it is a profound and also with hilarious moments interjected. It was fantastic. So. Oh, well, good. Well, and now you know, I'm so glad uh, to have done that. I'm so glad for that opportunity. I'm glad that it's reached a lot of people. I'm glad there's a good story out of it. And I'm glad that I, you know, for all the words, what's remarkable about something like that is you can't, all the stuff you can't say. It reminds me of what, I'm no, I'm no poet, but I would imagine it's very hard to write poetry in part because of all the stuff you just can't say and you have to imply and you have to suggest or leave pregnantly absent, etc. And for that format, there was so much that couldn't be said I think I can live with that thing. I think if I were to return to the content of that talk, I still actually believe it. 
And I'm really glad for that. So there's something out in the world in perpetuity that I think I still, that I'm pretty sure I really believe in. And that's good. That's wonderful. And I I think just this experience started off with your talk. The word that, that came up very often after you left was the word naked in its literal sense as well that you know, myself coming from a consulting marketing background, I'm very familiar with IDEO's work, have a lot of respect for that. But, you know, you find yourself oftentimes sitting at these meetings talking about something that's not critical, but you're dancing around these words. You can't use these words and you have to know who your audience is. You can't often speak the truth and just trying to get to the point. The meeting should only last five minutes, but they drag on for hours. And that's precisely the opposite feeling I had coming out of that talk, you know, to mm. myself, I, I had um, been to Tony Robbins seminar, surprising when I was 19. And one of the activities he conducted was walking on fire with barefoot, which, yeah. <laughs> which uh, I got the point. So I, I didn't actually do it. But during the talk, I thought to myself, wow, you know, if the exercise is to be naked and sit here and just be human and not feel embarrassed, I felt like I had the capacity to actually do that and I wouldn't be afraid. So with all the, I wonder, you know, coming out of the TED Talk and with now nearly 5 million views worldwide and seeing you on New York Times and sounds like Oprah is interested as well. With all the media buzz around you, who you are, what you do, all the excitements, like which part excites you and which part worries you a little bit? What's that dynamic like for you? Oh, well, so the New York Times Magazine article, that was meant to come out like a year ago. And the Oprah thing, Super Soul Sunday, already taped also roughly a year ago. So a lot of these things have their own, they're on their own trajectories. And the exciting part is for me that, you know, a lot of us who have been in this field for a while, have, we're used to lamenting the fact that no one pays attention to this subject of suffering, death, and uh, and, and to Eli's point, <laughs> it's like it's, it's in front of us. Hundred percent of us die. It's going to happen. It is inevitable. And somehow, some way, we figure out a way to avoid that subject. Somehow, we figure out a way to keep it feeling like death is optional. It's it's really kind of miraculous. Part of this refrain has been like, well, gosh, Americans are in denial. Yeah, sure. Maybe um, many of us are in denial. But the most heartening thing with this public life is to learn that there are plenty of people who actually really are interested in this subject. And we got to let go of some of the old thinking of we're so attached to being underdogs in the field of palliative care and underappreciated, etc. But actually, you know, turns out there's a big pent up desire and en- interest and energy around this subject. And people at least a large chunk of people really do want to talk about it and do want to think about it and don't want to just accept the defaults of the dying process that the healthcare industry has uh, has evinced. So the most exciting part is this is this realization that there's pent up interest and energy and creative juice around a subject that has been in a closet for too long and has been assumed to be nothing but bad and dark and blah, blah, blah. And in fact, is revealing itself to be grist for some very inventive thinking and or at least some great openness and some tenderness and some vulnerability and, and the nakedness that you, that you mentioned. So that's just awesome. That's thrilling. It feels like some, some could change. It feels like we could do things differently as a society. 
And that's my big hope, really, I guess, if why give these talks? Well, uh, for a number of reasons, but the bottom line would be, well, the more we all talk about it, the more light we shine on it, who knows what's possible? I don't have all the answers. I get to ask questions and provoke people like Eli and others who are uh, super smart to bring their brain power to this and their experience to this. And and with that opening, who knows what uh, solutions to problems are waiting for us? That that to me is just thrilling. I'm really happy to be part of, of that process, of that opening. I think the hard part for me personally is, uh, we've touched on a little bit, is I'm used to any human being, we get a lot of projections. You walk around in prosthetic legs, you're used to getting, you know, more projections. And now I have this sort of public life, uh, which is just, you know, you, you are a projection screen, you know, at this point with, you know, when, where, when I'm functioning as a symbolic critter in the world versus someone who's just exercising their own demons in a public way, it's, a, it's just a lot to keep straight. And it brings a lot of energy, mostly beautiful, mostly very, very sweet and kind, um, but also brings unrealistic expectation, or I fear brings unrealistic expectation. I'm not so special. I don't have uh, secret answers. I'm just another human being like everybody else trying to kind of get through the day and trying to make sense of their lives. I don't have extraordinary powers. And sometimes it can feel in this public way that people are expecting or hoping you to have answers. And that gets a little scary for me personally. So I guess a long-winded way of saying the, the hard part of this is the expectations that this public life incurs and also the, uh, the sort of emotional whipsaw of being important to people you've never met. And trying to honor that and respect that, even while you watch relationships with uh, actual friends be challenged and wither. It's so interesting. Like I, I have felt the affection of the affection of strangers much more than the affection of people who I'm actually close to. Anyway, we can go on and on about the the details of this, but I guess that's it in a nutshell. The tricky is the trick here is taking on a a larger symbolic role in society and what that does to you personally in your relationships and your sense of self, it, it can be quite um, scattering. refreshing to hear you say that and because I think there are so many people doing important work uh, who have not surfaced uh, to the major media level who are not suffering from this or thinking you know this may be the one thing that they are worried about and I remember Krista Tibbet once said that she interviews some of those people who are you know under the radar because they're yeah. so busy doing their things and they're almost on on purpose avoiding media for for this reason but I must say that uh, first of all I love interviewing doctors and you're the third doctor I've interviewed on, on my podcast and if we could just come out 
and have a conversation without expectation. There are several other doctors I tried to interview, and to be honest, and they had refused, kindly refused to say, I don't want to appear as an expert. I I don't want to kind of force my thoughts onto others. Meanwhile, I try to convince them to say that's not the point, and we can you know, maybe maneuver around some of how some of the questions are structured. You can review the transcript. Um, but still, I, I, I received a lot of rejection as a result of what, what you just mentioned. So, Yeah, it is. It's really, I'm glad you're surfacing a little bit. It's hardly something to complain about. I mean, I feel so lucky. And, I've, and this energy has allowed me to tool around the country and, and even internationally and see the world in a new way and meet people in a different way. I mean, it's been awesome. But it is tricky and it does have, it's not a dark side, it's just a tricky side um, that I'm glad you're surfacing. It's real. But like so many things, I think the trick is, well, the media and this symbolic life, well, they are something, they're real, it's something, it's just not everything. And and keeping that basic perspective and allows me to kind of keep going with it. So giving talks, being on your podcast, it's it's great. It's something. It's just not everything. And when what people think of me who have never met me based on something they've read, that's something. It's working. It's it's something. But I don't. I just can't make the mistake of confusing it with my totality with everything. And and I guess that last point is you mentioned too this imposter syndrome. For those of us who have it, which most of us have some version of it, those antibodies go through the roof with this kind of attention. And uh, you just try not to confuse yourself with the symbolic self and try to remember, especially in my world of hospice and palliative care, it's not like I invented hospice or palliative care. The people doing this work, working harder than I have ever worked and been doing it longer than me, and no one knows their name. And... uh, that's not something I can correct. It just helps me take this opportunity very seriously and and not get carried away with it and not uh, lose myself in that symbolic role. Mm-hmm. Well, very small thing I noticed became not losing yourself, and I was very very touched by, was the fact that after a long day for you flying from San Francisco and preparing for the speech, and then having to join us for dinner for the next two to three hours, mm-hmm. and then having everybody come up to you, hug you, express their own feelings, which was all good. Um, I noticed that you were the very last person to leave the room, mm-hmm. and. That really meant a lot to me. I'm not saying that you're obligated to do that every time in every event, but a lot of what we learn as human beings are not necessarily through a very structured speech or specific slides, but observing people for who they really are. And uh, it's interesting that we only met for a few hours, but I know precisely uh, deep down who you are as a person. And, you know, for a lot of other people, they still haven't had the opportunity and they might not have the opportunity to really meet you in person, to spend the time, to have a two-way conversation. But, you know, instead of reading an article or listening to an audio piece for 15 minutes, it's not the same feeling. So I want to mention that because I, I... I'm not a superstitious person, but I, there's something I do want to share with you about my personal story, which is my dad was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in 2008, I would say, and he battled with it, eventually passed away at the end of 2009. And um, during those two-year period, I was a caretaker for three months. I left my job and was in China. And so much of your teaching means the world to me because I was not aware, my whole family was not aware of palliative care and perhaps 
was not even a service currently offered in China, well, rarely offered. And even at a place like Beijing, uh, which is very unfortunate. But, you know, there's that, that part of me thinking that if there's anything, there's something I could do, which since then I have been incredibly interested in the medical world as a result of it. But I do want to share with you that maybe our spirit connected somehow all those years ago. He mm. was, he passed away at a hospital in Canton, which was four hours away from Beijing. His final wish was to be with his family, and that's where he grew up. Um, but there's also that tradition where if he had a son, the son is responsible for giving the speech at the funeral, and I'm the only child. And so that didn't work. So they went down the list of having his brothers speak at the funeral, and his brother committed, therefore I was no longer an option. But somehow the night before the funeral, but the funeral home only gave us about 15 minutes. It's very, very transactional. The night before, the brother, the older brother, said he wasn't going to say anything. I stayed up all night and I literally grabbed a couple of pieces of paper and wrote the entire speech. And I was, in a way, going to surprise everybody to say, hold on, I'm going to say something. So I did, in a way that, you know, I, after reading uh, the Zen Hospice Project, I realized a part of my speech, very much unlike the speech you ever hear at a Chinese funeral, is very much like the memories page of the stories I wrote about my dad, you know, about who he was as a person. And I want to share that with you because I remember when I was giving that speech, a little bit like TED Talk, the person managing the funeral home was rushing me the whole time. In fact, he saw the two pages said, are you serious? You're going to say all this? You have 15 minutes. This is going to run over. And everybody was crying. I wasn't crying at times. I was smiling, like talking about him. As you can imagine, I definitely left an impression. I don't think certain people in the room necessarily liked it. But the, the silver lining of all this is I went back to Beijing just a few days later. And my speech was spread around so widely. I heard people quoting me. People were not uh, even families. So uh, thank you for allowing me to, I feel like yeah. somehow uh, I wanted to create that experience for him. But way before I even know Zen Hospice Project existed. Oh, well, that's beautiful, Faye. Thank you for sharing that. Tradition, convention, there really are something. I, I, I don't, it can be, tradition can be glorious and beautiful, but breaking with tradition, even in uh, small ways, and doing something a little bit different, and certainly when it revol involves personal vulnerability, it can go so far because of that little crack, because you're going off the script. And boy, it can land, it can rub people the wrong way, but there's certain people out there, it's exactly what they need to hear and see someone do. And that's gorgeous, Faye. This is where these challenging moments get flipped on their head and become some a source of great beauty. And they're ones you would never necessarily choose for yourself, but that seems to be part of their charm and potency is that you wouldn't choose them, but yet you still deal with them. Thanks, Vijay. That was, uh, thanks for your comments. It really means a lot to me to kind of hear that from you and especially trying to be odd one at the time. You know, I had already been studying in the U.S. for a long time. So I heard people among the audience to say, oh, she's all Americanized. She doesn't know what she's doing. But mm -hmm. so much of what you say and what you do needs to be reflected in many languages. And in particular, one that I'm fluent in, which is Chinese, I have 
so many questions now about the way that we, as in the Chinese population, still looking at death. I feel like we are a cohort who desperately needs help in this. You know, growing up, we were not encouraged to go to funerals. I mm. couldn't go to many of them. The first I went to was my my own dad's. Since then, I've been to, in the past few years, I've been to more because I, I chose to be there. It's of such an empowering feeling. With that said, I know that we have very few minutes left. And, uh, you know, what do you see as the future of your work and how can we start doing something about this? Oh, well, good. Okay, great. Well, I'm, uh, for me, my job now is beating the drum with public speaking, not just behalf on Zen, uh, Zen Hospice Project, but on behalf of the field and patients and human beings who suffer and know that it could be different. So public speaking, I have my clinic at UCSF where I practice and teach palliative care at the cancer center there. Uh, and then the third piece is working on this book I referenced earlier, Shoshana Berger, my co-author, and I were working on a book, basically a field guide to dying. The, the working title is How to Die, a Field Guide. And Simon & Schuster is our publisher, and we're, uh, we've got a little ways to go yet, but we've got another couple months before the, the draft is due. But those are the big three pieces of my work right now. And then the, the, meanwhile, I'm also probably going to start my own little organization, what I've been calling the Center for Dying and Living, which would be something of an apparatus, a platform, a sort of a skunk works to take on difficult projects. We mentioned earlier the need for a branding campaign for palliative care. Uh, we need resource centers, a good flow of information for the public. If we really are serious about a patient or person-centered care, well, those patients, those people, we need to know what they want. We need to know what they're interested in. And we also, and those people, those patients need good information. So uh, creating resource centers on end-of-life care from the social science as well as the medical science point of view. Novel therapeutics. The way drug companies are wired, they're not really wired uh, to invent drugs to help people feel better in the moment. There's not a lot of research energy going into uh, palliatives or palliative care. So trying to kind of upend that. You know, a skunk works could take on other projects like prognostication. Why is that so difficult? And how do we advance that science? And I, you ask, how do we get more Zen hospices in the world? Well, that's a policy issue. There's an awareness issue. There's a workforce education issue. And then there's a systems issue. So I'm trying to move on all four fronts. That's sort of infrastructure systems, infrastructure, bricks and mortar, including bricks and mortar. Guest houses like Zen hospice projects need to be not so rare. Places that aren't nursing homes, aren't hospitals, uh, need to be created for long-term care. Uh, we need better communications tools. We need a society that's interested and aware, interested in their own health and well-being and their own and their own deaths. And we need that society to be aware and engaged. So public awareness, like we're doing right now, Faye, is a big piece of this. Policy to suit all this work. There needs to be a political arm to this effort. Uh, and then again, the workforce needs to be educated and trained, much as Atul Gawande points to in his book, Being Mortal. The healthcare system is doing exactly what it's designed to do, and doctors are doing what they're educated to do. And unfortunately, they're not educated to have difficult conversations or to help people yield to things that cannot be changed. Uh, or help people to find perspective amidst their suffering. These things are not taught in medical school, and yet this is a subject matter in any clinic any day of the year. So those are the four posts, and I'm trying to kind of move around on all four. Mm. I, I wrote down 
the four pillars. And I know that there's so much to do and there's so little time. BJ, thanks so much. I uh, I really enjoy the conversation. Well, it's a pleasure speaking with you, Faye, just as it was back in December. And thank you for your interest and for all that you share. And I'm glad to be uh, partnered up in this world So with you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, BJ. Okay, Faye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Faye. I'm back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at phaseworld.com to find out other episodes from this category or topic, or you could explore other awesome people who are artists and designers, digital marketers, performing artists, authors and speakers, entrepreneurs, students, educators, and more. For this reason, We've taken your feedback and created a landing page to most easily navigate by categories and topics. Simply visit podcast.phaseworld.com to learn more. Sincerely, I want to thank you for your support. Bye for now.